turning your Bibles over to Romans 13. I hope we're going to finish this chapter out today. We're in this uh, kind of mini-series here, A Time, The Time Has Come, and uh, we want to look at how that relates to us. This is part two of that message, so if you weren't here last week, uh, you need to go and listen to the um, message from the previous week. But um, let me read the text for us, and then we'll work our way through the remaining verses that we didn't finish uh, last week. Beginning in verse 11, Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Last week, we introduced this text, and we said that Paul is basically giving us several, four admonitions. He wants us as believers to understand how to live up to our name in Christ. And he begins to give us this list, almost in military fashion, to do certain things. And he, you see him there in the text. The first one is wake up in verse 11. The second one in verse 12 is cast off. The th- third one is walk right in 13. And then in verse 14, we find the capstone of all those. You can't do any of those unless you go to verse 14 and do that. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've covered the first two last week. And I warned you that this is not a time where you're to take these things home with you and say, well, I just have to do this. It's another thing for me to do as a Christian and add it to the list um, and feel the weight of having to perform to get a smile or a hug from God. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's saying, because you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14, these things are essential. If you don't do first four, four, 14, you can't do anything. You're not going to wake up if Christ hasn't already woken you up. If you're in a spiritual slumber, the Bible dis- defines us as, as being dead in our trespasses and sins when we're outside of Christ. It's very clear. And so what Paul is telling us to do is all based on verse 14 there, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, we looked at the first one, wake up, and we talked a little bit about what what that means. When you're sleeping, the definition of sleep is inactivity. And remember, he's not talking to unbelievers here. He's not saying, wake up from your deadness and sin. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. And he's saying, you need to be faithful, you need to be obedient, you need to be a loving Christian, and you need to continually grow and become more like Christ. We mentioned last week that that's what a Christian should be. It's a little Christ. It's a representative of Christ. That name was given to them as a derogatory term. It wasn't given to them as something, oh, they're like Jesus, Christians were first called Christians mockingly in Acts chapter 11. And it was kind of a diminutive name for Christians. And it soon, that word Christian soon came to be used as a a word of disdain among Gentiles and Jews. If they wanted to get after somebody, they would call him a Christian. Remember what King Agrippa said to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 28. When King Agrippa, an unbelieving Jew, 
replied to Paul, the scripture says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. He wasn't saying, oh, good, I'm looking forward to that. He's like, that ain't going to happen, pal. I don't want to become one of them. It wasn't a calling of honor and respect. It was one that was looked down upon. In 1 Peter 4.16, he writes, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in the name, in that name, let him glorify God. See, and that was assuming that if, if, if you're being called a Christian, you're under some kind of a persecution. He's saying if your persecutors make fun of you or deride you or run you down for the name of Christ, don't be ashamed about that. That's not something to be ashamed. Rather, accept that as a badge of honor because it will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we looked at the, these verses 11 and 12, and it says, Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Night is far gone. The day is at hand. And we talked about several points there. The believer is to know the time. First, the first point, this is a review. And we realize that time is limited. We have limited opportunity to reach those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ with the gospel. This was... very heavy on my heart this past week. You no doubt heard of those four young teenagers, 18, two of them were 18, one of them was 19. On Tuesday night, they went over to Half Moon Bay to look at a used car, Halloween night. They were driving back and on Skyline Boulevard, they couldn't maneuver a curve. Their car went off the embankment Slammed roof first into a big redwood tree, instantly killing all three young men. And then toppled down the ravine another 50, 75 feet and ended up on its four wheels. I got the call Wednesday night or Wednesday morning as a chaplain to respond to the scene. And as a chaplain, I've responded to many scenes like this. But I'll tell you what, just going through Romans 13 and standing there in a, what would be a beautiful forest, redwood trees, with three strapping young men in a body bag with their face exposed on a gurney and their families weeping uncontrollably. Horrible. Horrible. I walked away from there changed. I walked away from there realizing, you know what? What we're studying is so true. We do not know when our hour will come or when someone else's hour will come. These were three young guys that two of them were fire explorers. Don't think there was any alcohol or anything wrong involved. And yet, their bodies were cold to the touch. The life was out of them. We need to know and understand the time in which we live. We don't need to be sucked into this society and the world and, and thinking that somehow that the more we spend time doing our jobs or parenting our kids or doing whatever, that it's okay to stick the Lord over here in the corner. That's just not true. It's time, secondly, we said to awaken out of sleep. It's almost as if the apostle's shouting at us at this point. Wake up! Don't you understand that judgment is at hand? The third thing he shared. And as believers... We will stand before, and we will be judged by our works, not on a basis to get into heaven, but for our rewards. We need to be reminded of that. Now remember, he is addressing 
believers here. He's addressing Christians. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's saying, hey, those of you who have had your sins forgiven, those of you who are Christians, wake up. Because judgment is at hand. Now remember, our salvation is a process, right? We're saved, we're forgiven. God has chosen us in eternity past, and then the practicality of that comes to light when we come to Christ here in this life. But then we're, we're constantly being saved each and every day. And that's the, the three aspects of our, of our salvation that I put there in your notes. We're justified. Justification refers to that one time when God declares us positionally righteous. And that happens once that believer is, is saved from the penalty of sin. But then you have the process of sanctification, right? And it refers to that lifelong process that we live here on this earth, in this fallen body, in this fallen world, and we're constantly to grow spiritually in our practical righteousness. And then the third aspect of our salvation is the glorification, something we can look forward to. Do you look forward to that day? Amen? Amen, man. I I do. You don't have to deal with sin. You don't have to deal with death. You don't have to deal with the struggles and the pains that we have here on this earth. That's the believer's future ultimate perfection as the child of God as we stand in his presence. We need to be reminded of that because it helps us keep in perspective our life here on earth. It's way too easy to put the things of God on the shelf. It's way too easy to think that somehow punching the card coming once a week on Sundays, well, you're doing your duty and you know, you're, you're doing what God expects you to do. No, you're not. I'll just be upfront. You're not. Show me in the New Testament where that's the model. As believers, they didn't do that. They met every day. They met house to house. They had fellowship. They had meals together. They were constantly together. And yet we live in a day and an age today where, well, you know, there's the preacher harping on, you know, we've got to spend more time at the church. The question is, why don't we want to? Why is it on a Wednesday night when we're studying the word of God, we have maybe 15, 20 people? And yet we have a church of 50 or 60. Why is that? I know, okay, move on, you know, you're dabbling now, you're getting a little too close. It's true though, beloved. And I'm just saying, we don't know when our time is going to come. And I don't know about you, but when that time comes, man, I want somebody to at least say, you know what? He, were, he did for the Lord right up until that day. He wasn't caught, you know, Twiddling his thumbs. He was concerned about spiritual things. And, and all of us, including myself, have a, a long way to go in that way. So I'm not in any means preaching to you without preaching to me first. But we need to wake up. Secondly, we looked at we need to cast off. We need to cast off. It says, the night is gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. But speaking of casting off, we said that it's time to cast off the works of darkness. And it has the imagery of a soldier who was in a drunken stupor and out doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And the morning comes, the dawn is approaching, and he's got to go back to war. And he's got to get his uniform in order. He's got to get everything back together. Because he hasn't been doing what he was supposed to be doing. It has the idea of forsaking or renouncing things in our life that shouldn't be there. I mean, the Lord is grieved by all sin, but I I really believe that he's especially grieved by his children whose sins are paid for. I mean, we sin by choice, do we not? That's why we sin. You can't blame it on anything else. 
And even though God has transformed us, he's forgiven us, he's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, every time we sin, it's like we're going back into the dirty hamper and pulling out that greasy, you know, horrible pair of jeans and and putting them on once again. And God said, you, you don't have to do that. Why are you doing that? We should be putting on the armor of light, getting ready for the battle that we're in each and every day. See, sin and righteousness are as incompatible and mutually exclusive as darkness and light. If you're a believer here this morning, you you need to hear that. That if there's sin, active sin, ongoing sin in your life, and you're saying, hey, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, my sins are forgiven, you, you better examine your heart. It's not that we're perfect, none of us are. But you'll see a little later on here this morning when it says don't make any provision for the the flesh, what that means. See, the Christian spiritual armor is the light of God's own holiness, his own purity, his own truth. And that's what he wants us to be continually clothing ourselves in. Not in the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the world, worldly concerns. It's the clothing of spiritual purity, of integrity that reflects our Lord's holiness that he's concerned with. And why does he want that? So that all the world can see that, wow, we are transformed. We're different. We're not just fitting in the world like everybody else. That brings us to the third thing, and this is where we start this morning with the message. Walk right in verse 13. He continues and he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We're called in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 8 and 9, we're to behave properly as in the day because we are children of God. We are not We are of the day, and therefore we should be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful thing? That we don't have to worry about falling under the judgment and the wrath of God because he has gloriously, graciously saved us? Why? Because he wanted to. (laughs) Nothing good in us. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short because he loved us. He wanted to. It says, but for the obtaining salvation, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, to behave properly is to live in a way that pleases God. It's to live honestly before the Lord, to live honestly before our fellow man, to live an outward life that is, I guess you would say, consistent with our inner nature in Christ, to live a sanctified, set-apart life that reflects the life that has been justified for us. Ephesians 5.27 says that we're to live a life that has no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It's a high standard. 2 Peter 3.14 says that we should be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, are we going to sin? Sure, we're going to sin. We're in the flesh. We're here in this body still. Even though we're transformed, our sins are forgiven, you know, we deal with sin each and every day. That's why we should be quick to forgive or to confess our sins and thank God for his forgiveness. The Christian who is not living a holy and obedient life is a Christian who either doesn't comprehend the significance of of these scriptures or is not really concerned about when the Lord comes back. But a believer who understands that the Lord is coming back, there's going to be a day of judgment for the believer, not for salvation, but of our works. We're daily looking for his Lord to appear. Is a, is a believer who is, is really seeking to please him. But if you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, man, you don't want him to come back. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 and 13 says, The Christian who longs for the Christ's coming is characterized by holy conduct and godliness because he's looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The problem with a lot of Christians today, they're so, they got their nose so far stuck in the world, they wouldn't know the coming of the Lord if it hit them on the head. Their priorities are all messed up. And so after Paul admonishes the Colossian believers to consider themselves dead to various sins in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, he says, hey, we're all prone to sin. He says, put them aside. This has to deal with our walk. He reminds them that, well, you know, if you're saved, then you need to lay aside the old self with its evil practices. And listen to what he says. And put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And he goes on in verses 12 to 14. He says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, devote yourselves to righteousness, putting on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever hasn't complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all of these things, put on, right back to the theme, love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now he turns negative and he lists these things here in, in Romans. What walking properly, walking rightly looks like. He says, well, first of all, you shouldn't be orgies and drunkenness. That first there on the list is orgies. It's a term often used of, which is kind of interesting, a military or athletic victory celebration. Because of such revelry and it turned into drunkenness and all kinds of immoral disorder. It came to be used of any wild partying, sexual orgies, orgies brawls, uh, sometimes even rioting, King James uses. And it's usually associated with the second list there, drunkenness. You know, drunkenness is a sin. It's a sin. It's, this word here is often used of intentional, habitual intoxication. In Galatians 5.21 and 1 Peter 4.3, carousing and drunkenness are found side by side. That's what happens. The next two sins here mentioned, sexual promiscuity and sensuality, they're also closely related. Sexual promiscuity, it's not the word in the original language, pornea. That's the common Greek word for sexual immorality. It's koite, which refers to a bed or bedroom. Today, we would refer to someone being sexually Promiscuous is, well, they went to bed with somebody. In the New Testament, the word is issued, is used usually, um, it can be used in an honorable way of the marriage bed, as in Hebrews 13.4, or of illicit sexual promiscuity, as it's used here. But then he also says, not just sexual promiscuity, but sensuality. It's the basic meaning of shameless excess, the absence of restraint. That's been in the news lately. Well, this man from Hollywood, you know, he just, he has a disease. He's got to be treated. Because he's been sexually promiscuous with all these women over all these years or whatever. 
See, this refers to a kind of sexual debauchery and abandonment that characterizes much of our modern society. And usually, it's flaunted as a badge of distinction. It's not looked down upon in our society, unfortunately. But he moves on and he talks about quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling refers to this persistent contention. Somebody who's just constantly bickering, petty disagreements with a lot of enmity, a lot of anger involved. It reflects a spirit of antagonistic competitiveness that fights to have its own way regardless of the cost to itself or to harm of others. They don't care. It's really produced by a deep desire to prevail over others, to gain the highest prestige, the highest prominence, recognition as possible. It's usually characterized by self-indulgence or egotism. It has no place, no place, much less any tolerance or anything like that for anything having to do with what Christ tells us to be, things like humility and love. They they don't care about that. And then he lists jealousy. We get the word zeal or zealous from this original word, which often carries a positive connotation, but it can also sometimes be used positively in the New Testament. Um, In Romans 10, verse 2 Paul spoke of unsaved Jews who had an untaught and misdirected zeal for God. That was a good thing. Or in 2 Corinthians 7, 7, he expressed a deep appreciation for their zeal for him. But in this passage, the word really is properly translated in a very negative sense of jealousy. Or in the King James, it says envying James uses this twice in James chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. He connects jealousy with self-ambition. So you have quarreling and jealousy. And these were two especially fleshly sins that caused a lot of division, a lot of uh, partisan issues in the church at Corinth. All the sins mentioned except for one in Romans 13, 13 are specifically listed among the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. But see, Paul wasn't just preaching to his readers, to those whom he was teaching. See, Paul never lost sight of the fact that he himself was the foremost of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says... The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He reminded us in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's so important that we understand that we are justified by his grace. We're not justified by what we do. Being here today does not justify you one iota before God. And yet that's how we think. That's what Justin Peters will be teaching on next week. If you come from a Catholic background, if you have Catholic friends, you should be here. He's going to be talking about Catholic doctrine and the Reformation. They believe you're justified by grace plus works. So we need to walk rightly. We need to make sure that we're doing the right 
thing. But we also have to come to verse 14 and deal with this today. Put on. And this is where it all happens. This is basically, if you don't get to this, you're not going to get any of the other things done. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, as we clothe ourselves with Christ, with his righteousness, truth, holiness, love, all those things, we become more and more evident as believers to the world in our own lives. His character becomes more reflected in us. It's interesting, this term, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It it really has the idea of putting on clothes. That's the idea. You got up this morning and you put on clothes and you came to church. Here it has the figure of putting clothing on as as a symbolic of, of moral and spiritual behavior. It was actually used by ancient rabbis who spoke of true worshipers putting on the cloak of the Shekinah glory. They meant that they were being reflective. They were becoming like the God that they worshiped. That's what God desires of us. Jesus used the figure of clothing several times throughout the New Testament. Uh, Paul admonishes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and 24, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit, what? Of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul even told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It has the idea of putting Christ on. In some places, the figures of taking off and putting on are used in the past tense in the New Testament. When we became a believer in Christ, guess what? We were clothed in whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. That's something that happened the day we came to Christ. And we continue to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ up until the day we'll be in his presence if we're truly converted. The old nature dies and the new nature is created. You don't have two natures. You don't have a sin nature and a new nature and they're doing battle. Some people teach that. That that ends up being, you know, a schizophrenic Christian. You know, who am I going to listen to? That's not what the Bible says. And we went through that when we went through Romans. The old nature died. When something dies, it's dead. There's no life in it. And you say, well, why do we still have a problem with sin then if we have a new nature? Because we're captive in this Sarkos, this flesh, this fallen body, this fallen world. Look over at Colossians chapter 3. Because this is a really neat place where he actually uses these figures. Paul uses this figure when he admonishes the, the Christians in Colossae here. He says here in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. We're familiar with these verses. Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So the picture is you're, you're connected to Christ. He's talking to Christians. The old self, the old thing has gone away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists some things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, why would Paul tell Christians to put these things to death if after you became a Christian, you were perfect? Some people teach that. Some people teach that after you become a Christian, somehow you can live perfectly. Perfection. Well, that's not true. 
And this is one of the texts that proves it because Paul's commanding them, put to death these things. These things are going on in your life. They're going on in probably all of our lives at some point. Put them to death. He says, verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. In other words, this, is, this was your everyday life at some point, but now you're changed. This shouldn't be part of your life every day. When you were living in them. Notice that word living in them. It means that that's all you did. See, there, there's a big difference, beloved, between falling into sin and practicing sin as a way of life. Some people say, well, could you be a homosexual and be a Christian? Sure, if they trust in Christ, they could be a Christian. But the Bible says they wouldn't continue to practice their homosexuality. Just like somebody who's single and sexually promiscuous with other people, they become a Christian They shouldn't continue to practice their sexual promiscuity with other people. They should stop. And so we need to be, understand what what this is saying to us. Hey, this is the way you once walked. This is the way you live, but no longer. You've changed. He says in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Stop doing these as a way of life. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. That has no place, no place, whether you're joking or not, in in the life of a believer. And by the way, if you're at the water cooler and someone tells an off-color joke, you laughing at it doesn't help. Especially if they know you're a Christian. Why would you laugh at such a thing? We need to be careful about our testimonies out here in this lost and dying world. He says in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing, look at this, that you have put off the old self with its practices. When did that happen? The, The moment God justified you. The moment you were saved. See, it's talking something that was done. He's not telling them to do it. He says you have put off the old self. It's already done. With its practices. And then he says in verse 10. And have put on the new self. Which is being renewed in knowledge. After the image of its creator. So you have three terms here. Putting off the old self. That's justification. That's when you get saved. Putting on the new self. That's Part of that experience as well, that's when that happened. It doesn't happen after that. It's not like the old self goes away and then you wait and wait and wait and then God finally gives you a new self. It happens simultaneously. God transforms you. He says he calls you out of darkness into light. So those are past things. But then look at what he says. He says, but you need to be renewed in knowledge. Being renewed in knowledge. Well, what does that refer to? That refers to our sanctification. That refers to us living this Christian life practically here on earth in a way that measures up to our position in Christ. What's our position in Christ? We're righteous. He, he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is, you know what? You're wearing the righteousness of Christ. Why don't you act like it? Why are you over here dabbling in these old clothes, doing these things that you left behind that have been forgiven? You don't need to do that. You have the power of the Spirit. You can overcome those things. Now, do we fall occasionally? Sure. We all do. That's why he says you can confess your sins. You can also translate when you confess your sins, since you confess your sins. Why wouldn't you confess your sins to a God who's already forgiven your sins? It doesn't make any sense not to. But so many times I see believers fall into sin, and what does the sin do? It drives them away from fellowship. It drives them away from church, not nearer. It drives them further away from God, not closer. 
because they feel ashamed because somehow they, they got this thing all wrong. They think somehow they have some innate righteousness in and of themselves. Guess what? We're all unrighteous. We all start on the same plane, beloved. And if it wasn't for the grace of God saving us gloriously by his love and his grace and his forgiveness, we'd all be in hell. It's only by his grace that we are converted. So don't get up on your high and mighty thinking somehow because you're doing more than the, the person next to you. For the, somehow that's God loves you more. No, that's not how it works. And Paul wants us to see that. He's saying, you know what? You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For goodness sakes, live up to your potential. Live up to that position. I mean, we all have certain images, right? I mean, if, if you saw a guy down by the courthouse in a long black robe, what would you think he was? A judge, right? I mean, you would just think, well, that guy's a judge. Because people don't walk around in those kind of clothes. Or if you saw somebody uh, dressed in a blue uniform with a badge and he had a gun, well, that's a police officer. Or if you saw somebody with a white collar around their neck, well, maybe they're a priest or whatever. I mean, you would just associate certain things. That's what he's trying to get us to see. And so he says, you need to be renewed in knowledge. That's speaking of our sanctification. That's telling us, you know what? Each and every day as you live out your life as a Christian here on this earth, It's not going to be easy, but you need to be living up to the position that God has called you to. He's given us everything that we need to do that. So we have justification. We have sanctification and we have glorification. The glorification is future. That's when everything's going to be set right, right? We don't have to worry about sin. We don't do anything. But right now, we're in the middle. (laughs) Positionally, before God, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All of our sins are forgiven. There's nobody can bring any condemnation against us whatsoever. God will never punish us if we are truly converted, if God has, Christ has truly paid for our sins. Because there are no sins in God's mind. Do you understand that? That's so important to understand. Because what happens when we sin? When we sin practically... In our Christian lives, all of a sudden, oh, I feel bad. Oh, I've got to do this. And, and certain faiths play on that, and they want them under their thumbs. So, oh, yeah, you've got to you know, say five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. And, you know, you've got to come to confession. You've got to do this. And it plays to our flesh. Like we're kind of doing something to pull ourselves up out of this. And when you realize, you know what, there's nothing you can do except go to God and say, God, you know what, I blew it. I blew it again. Thank you for your forgiveness. Make me stronger. Help me live a life that's honoring to you. Don't believe the lie that you have to live in sin. Don't believe it. It's not true. There's something that is already true about our spiritual life, and there's something that should be true about it. It's indicative and it's imperative. There's a holiness that we already have in Christ. And there's a holiness that we should desire to continue to pursue. God has made us righteous before him positionally. And yet we need to strive each and every day to live in a righteous way. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 27... Paul's speaking about their time of conversion here. And the apostle reminds believers in Galatia... He says, all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Oh, is he talking about being baptized? Some people are going to get baptized maybe next week. Depending on the thing, if they're ready, people go through some baptism classes. No, this is a dry verse. It has no water in it. It's not talking about water baptism. There's a baptism that happens to believers when they come to Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, what happens? God puts you into Christ. It's kind of like this is you before you're a Christian, and this is Christ over here. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, God says, okay, you know what? I'm going to hide you in my son. And what does he see when he looks at us? He sees Christ. He doesn't see sinful Steve Converse. He doesn't see the guy that's struggling with this or that. or No, he sees his son. 
And what he's saying is you need to live up to that. You need to make sure that your life depicts the life of someone who's been saved. He's given us everything to do it. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the church. Even Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 22, he says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is bestowed on all those who believe. He also said in Romans 4 or 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So he's saying, you know what? You couldn't work your way to heaven if you tried. It's not going to work. Stop. You just need to believe in him who justifies you. Believe in him who can save you. He says his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians 1.30 where Paul says, By the grace of God the Father, we are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, it makes very clear here that the Christian has already been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's already done. Remember Isaiah 61.10, where the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me, past tense, with garments of salvation and has wrapped me in the robe of righteousness. That's our justification. Our sanctification, on the other hand, is an ongoing process. That's where we're constantly trying to live up to that position of righteousness we have in Christ. And you say, were we ever going to get there? Yeah, one day when he comes back and we're glorified. But as long as we're here in the flesh, it's going to be a constant battle. That's what you got to look forward to. That's why Paul is saying, hello, wake up. Don't fall asleep. Because the enemy will run right over you. Well, back to Romans 13 and we'll close. And today we're going to close at the end, not with a song, but with a little video I want to show you. But this is a song and it kind of speaks to some of this stuff. But he closes here in verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you'll be able to wake up. Then you'll know what the time is. Then you'll be able to walk right. All those things. But it's all conditional on, you know what? Who is Jesus Christ to you? That's, that's a question you're ultimately going to have to answer one day. When you stand before God, and trust me, we will all stand before God. And those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, the simple question will be, what did you do with my son? Oh, that guy Jesus? Yeah. You know, I went to church. I read some of his writings. He was a great guy. And wrong answer. That's not going to work. The only answer that will appease God on that day. Oh yes, Christ. Yes, he's my savior. I put my faith and trust. I, I owe everything to him. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. And then he says here, and make no provision for the flesh. This word provision means forethought. It means planning ahead. You know, sometimes we think, as believers, that somehow we just fall into sin. You know, we're out living for the Lord, and oh, 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 wow, how'd I end up here? Doesn't happen that way, beloved. Sorry. At least it doesn't happen that way in my life. You know, I'll just be real transparent. When I sin, I've thought about it. And when I sin, I know I'm doing something wrong. I don't need even to be told by anyone. Because I already know, because the Spirit of God has convicted my heart. And trust me, there's been many sins in my life. And when I come to that point, and it's like, oh, wow, how'd I end up here again? I just didn't fall into it. We sin by choice. So let's just man up, own it. Thank God for his grace, for his forgiveness, and move on. Don't allow Satan to take ownership of that and to squash you down like you're less than a bug 
And somehow God doesn't love you anymore because, you know, you slipped up. Don't believe that lie. Remember, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. That should not motivate you to go out and sin more. That should motivate you to go out and live a holy life depicting the life that you're called to. In Proverbs 24, or in Psalm 36, 1 and 4, David understood transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. The ungodly person does not stumble into sin, Proverbs 24, 8 says, but plans to do evil. Now, when you come to the end of Romans 13, I pray that you will simply understand what God expects of us as believers is to live each day, not called to do our own thing. We're not here to live our own agenda. We're here and we're called to follow him. Um, There's a song I'm going to share with you, a video by uh, 10th Avenue North as a Christian group. And the, the, the name of the song is what, uh, Want What You Want. And it's just talking about the life of a Christian, how, you know what, we're called to want what Christ wants. It's not about us. And one of the phrases, and I love this in the video, because in the church today, you know, you can find all kind of workshops and all kinds of people talking about leadership. And, oh, we got to have a leadership team. we got leadership. And he says, you know what? So many leaders, but no followers. He didn't ask us. If you think about it, Jesus Christ never told his disciples, go out there and lead. Never, ever. What did he tell them to do? Follow me. We're just called to be followers. That's it. So let's just keep it on the bottom shelf and, and do the basic thing that God has called us to do. I want to show you the video and then uh, let me close in, in prayer first and then we'll show the video and then um, we'll, we'll be dismissed because we're not going to do anything after that. Father, we thank you for our food uh, that we're going to enjoy across the way. Pray that you'd bless it to our bodies. I pray that this video would speak to our hearts. Lord, I know it's just music and a video, but I, I pray that the words would penetrate us and help us to realize that this, this Christian thing is not meant to be difficult. It's simply to want what you want from us and do what you called us to do. And Lord, I pray that you would um, bless us as a church as we seek and desire to, to serve you in a more effective way in our own lives and as a church. And, and Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that you would help them to understand that time is short. We never know when we will be called into eternity. And so, Father, we just ask that you would uh, help us to live each day as if it were our last and to get the message of the gospel into the ears of those who have yet to believe and live in a way that would be honoring and glory of our position in Christ. Help us to live our Christian life practically every day. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.